This is The Podlight, a podcast produced by San Jose Spotlight, San Jose's first nonprofit news organization dedicated to independent political and business reporting. I'm your host, Editor Nick Preciado. Thousands of homeless people live on the streets of San Jose and Santa Clara County, and hundreds of them are dying each year. Homeless deaths have been increasing over the past decade, and this year is on track to match 2021's high of 250 deaths. To understand what's happening locally, I talked to two homeless advocates about the issue, Sean Cartwright with the Unhoused Response Group and Todd Langton of Agape Silicon Valley. I'm here today talking with Sean Cartwright, a homeless advocate and co-founder of the Unhoused Response Group, which holds an annual public memorial honoring those who've died without shelter. Welcome to the program, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, so far this year, 167 homeless people have died, uh, with more than 70% being in San Jose. Deaths have grown significantly over the last decade, reaching a peak last year of 250. What do you attribute as the reasons for why homeless deaths have been increasing over the years? I think there's um, two main categories. I think that's the loss of low-income housing um, and also via evictions and just people can't afford just um, the increases. Um, but that's also from places like the reserves. The reserves was the largest eviction in California history in 2016. And that was 216 units that housed 670 people. Um, so when you have things like that happen, those are people who had low income housing for up to 20 years and they were just scattered everywhere. And that's, you know, 216 units of low income housing that we no longer have. I also think it's to, um, we have the silver tsunami is upon us. And these are all of uh, the World War II babies that are now retiring and finding out that um, Social Security does not make their rent. And they are finding themselves without resources and without homes. And they are on the streets and they are ill-equipped to this. Imagine becoming unhoused when you're at retirement age you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and they are dying. I'd like to circle back to the silver tsunami thing in just a sec. But before we do, I'd also like to touch on some drug-related deaths. Um, According to the county data that's been released, 60 of these deaths uh, for this year are drug-related, some dealing with fentanyl use. I'm curious to know, as somebody who deals with, you know, these these individuals and these populations, how big of an issue is fentanyl among the local unhoused population? And what can be done, uh, sorry, what can be done to locally uh, stem these overdose deaths and provide treatment? So a wise person once told me, you know, if you didn't do drugs before you got out here, you're going to do them now. And part of that is uh, to stay awake at night, to fend off predators, and also just to erase the trauma that you're experiencing as an unhoused person. Uh, Fentanyl is on the rise. What we're doing personally is we're passing out more and more of the naloxone um, so that making sure that everyone has a way uh, to bring somebody back. Uh, we're passing out the county's program to not use alone. Um, so you can sort of like call somebody up and let somebody know that you're going to be using um, uh, meth or fentanyl. And we're also trying to get more access. We need much greater access to the fentanyl test strips. or to So if somebody is actually trying to use meth and not fentanyl, they can test it and see if it actually has fentanyl in it. I see. So part of the problem is also it seems like fentanyl contamination or drugs being passed off as something else when they're really fentanyl. Am I correct in that? Yeah. Unfortunately, fentanyl is in almost everything nowadays. But the biggest problem with 
um, all the drug-related deaths is that it's almost impossible for folks to get into rehab. You have to call and win, and win the lottery for the day. If you're on Medi-Cal or Medicare, uh, those don't pay for anything past a seven-day detox stint. Um, if you are in a shelter or unhoused and you do manage to go to rehab for, say, 30, 60, 90 days and you get back and you're sober, then what? You're still unhoused. So that just leads people to use again because, you know, your reality is not great. So if there was a way to provide a lot more rehab beds, not detox beds, rehab beds, and make sure that the people are released from rehab with housing, we would have a much greater success rate. Now, a few of these deaths have also been related to recent heat waves. Uh, we experienced some triple digits uh, a few weeks ago, earlier in September. I'm curious to know what kind of access homeless residents have uh, for spaces to cool off, as well as find water when it's hot. I know that San Jose and Santa Clara County both open cooling centers at specific times, usually when there's a heat advisory. But we here at San Jose Spotlight, we've heard complaints before that these locations can be far out from where people are staying and that not enough wa uh, bottled water is always handed out. Can you speak to these? The problem with the cooling centers is for, you know, what is the first thing for house people? They say, oh, it's a rough day. I just really want to go home, take a shower and lay down. At these cooling centers, which are frequently just libraries, you don't have that ability. You can't lay down at a library. So what we've asked is actual cooling centers where there's cots, where people can lay down. It would be conversely for warming centers, but we really need places where people can actually lay down and relax. Because if you're just going to a library and sitting there and just do to do to do and waiting for closing time to come around, it's there's no relaxation. There's no cooling. You're not getting drinks with electrolytes in them. You don't have the ability for your body to just calm down. You know, you're still stuck in fight or flight. And what we need are cooling centers where people can actually just lay down, drink some electrolytes, um, have some cool cloths, have the ability to maybe take a shower. I mean, that would have some water for their pets. That would go a lot farther and people would actually utilize that more often. Mm, I see. Thank you for explaining that. Now, these deaths are also increasing as the general homeless population is increasing as well. Um, some numbers here, homelessness has gone up 11% in San Jose compared to 2019, and there's more than 10,000 people total living on the streets in Santa Clara County as of this year. Can you talk about some of the causes of why more people seem to be falling into homelessness across the county? Again, I think that part of that relates back to the silver tsunami. Uh, we also went through COVID and a lot of people didn't get their jobs back. Um, particularly for our undocumented folks, a lot of them were in the service industry. And so they had jobs that were secure and you didn't have to go around to um, potentially get yourself in trouble because you had a safe job. And now afterwards it's, uh Oh, you know, now I don't have a house. I don't have a home. I don't have anything. And so it's really placed people in some predicaments. Um, also we have, just for a lot of folks, they're just not equipped to be unhoused. People that fell unhoused during COVID, like people who had never thought in a million years that it could be them, found out that it could be. And so that's just leading to people, um, particularly people with families that are really afraid that if they get caught with their children out there, that they're going to 
CPS that's going to take away their children. So it's just leading to people not um, seeking services as much, and that leads them to be stuck out there longer. Um, And that's really um, hard. That's really, really hard for folks. This brings us back to something that we've touched on a little bit uh, earlier, the silver tsunami, this idea that uh, one of the most vulnerable populations of the homeless population, seniors, that more seniors are falling into homelessness. In your experience, what issues are seniors facing that can lead to homelessness and what is currently being done to address that? This seems, I would think, to be one of the most vulnerable populations that the county and city would want to address with some urgency. I don't know if urgency is really what I would describe it as. Um, they <clears throat> So you have people who have lived, you know, regular life, expecting that when they get old enough, they're going to retire and their social security is going to pay their rent or at least give them enough money to be able to pay their rent because that's the, that's the way it's always been for, you know, generations. You know, you get old enough, you retire, you get social security, everything's good. And it's not like that anymore because social security doesn't pay the rent for the majority of folks. And so you have people who are finding themselves on the streets and with no ability to defend themselves, with no ability to uh, to actually even like erect tents and go stand in food lines or to to stay up all night, you know, to defend their you know what meager belongings they have, and so it makes them really easy victims. And so then you have people who are older, then they start doing the drugs too because it makes it easy for them to stay up all night to defend their stuff. And it just becomes this really crazy, sad story. And for a lot of these folks, they're a proud generation. And they keep thinking like, I don't need help from anybody. And then they find themselves homeless. And they still keep thinking that I don't need help from anybody. And we as advocates are like, I kind of think you do. And so, you know, for a lot of us, you just spend a lot of time working on one person because you realize that they're in a lot more of a medical situation than they think that they are. And you just devote a lot of resources to getting them off the streets. Um, I have begged the county to start a shelter that is just for senior citizens um, and people trained in working with senior citizens, because there are many senior, not many, but there are senior citizens that are stuck in a category where they don't have the cognitive skills to stay in a regular shelter, but they're also not sick enough or recovering from a certain illness that they need to be in respite. And so they're being left out on the streets. You know, they're not, they don't fit into any category. You know, they they shouldn't be in a convalescent home or a retirement home. They're kind of between categories. They need a shelter all to themselves with trained staff. And that's one of the biggest things that we need right now. You know, another one of these categories of the unhoused population, some estimate this is actually being as large as 25%, um, are people struggling with mental health issues. So for, for these individuals, housing is really only one piece of the equation for them, but they also need these mental health supportive services. I'm curious what kind of people you come across that deal with, you know, the need for these supportive services and how this can be prioritized to help people get off the streets. Well, there's all different kinds of needs for mental health services, um, you know, I'm sure there's, it's more than 25% of people who are housed who have struggles with mental health services. Um, but because they're housed, we don't know it. You know, everyone seems to be taking something for depression or anxiety or PTSD. Um, 
but it's a lot harder to see your psychologist or your psychiatrist as often as you need be and to get your refill your prescriptions refilled and to maintain those prescriptions when you're being strapped when you're being swept and you're on the street that's really the problem you know i know i have somebody who's close to me who is dual if not triple diagnosed which means you have two or three di- different mental health diagnoses and they can't they're not getting regular appointments with their psychiatrist and they really need it you know, it's very hard to maintain those things. So rather than locking people up and saying, we need Laura's law, we need to lock people up, we need to ensure that people have an, a very simple way to get their mental health treatment and to get their medication. Because house people do, and th- that's even house people who are on Medi-Cal and Medicare. We need to extend the same, uh, you know, medical um, necessities treatments to unhoused people as we do to house people. And I mean, sometimes it's just as simple as depression, you know, anxiety, PTSD. Final question here, Sean. I think tied into all of this is the lack of shelter, rehab beds, treatment beds, depending on a person's situation uh, for these people who are out in the streets. The city and county are trying, you know, a few things to get people housed. Uh, This includes building prefabricated tiny homes at a cost of what it takes to build more traditional housing, as well as, as exploring safe parking sites for people living in their vehicles. On top of these efforts, what do you think the city and county can be doing to successfully house people faster than they're falling into homelessness? I think they need to listen to the people on the street and listen to the advocates, because we've all been saying that we need to do things faster. And they keep saying, no, we're going to do this. And we keep saying, no, faster. And they go, whatever, we're going to do this. So pallet shelters, they are not great. They are not for a long time stay, but you could put them up in a couple of hours. They have a heater, they have an air conditioner. You can put up a hundred of those in the time that it takes to build, to build tiny homes. So if you want to get people off the streets very, very quickly and have them there for a short amount of time, we can get it hundreds of people off the streets quickly for this winter, this winter, not next winter, this winter, before we build like the next tiny homes. And then for the tiny homes, we need to make sure that we are having rules that people can actually follow. You cannot take a nocturnal tribal group of people and put them in an area where they can't have any visitors. They have to have a curfew It goes completely against what uh, their community is like. And you have to acknowledge that if you want people to succeed in large numbers. You have to acknowledge that. Thank you for explaining that, Sean. Sean Cartwright, co-founder of the Unhoused Response Group. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Have a good day. That was Sean Cartwright, a homeless advocate and co-founder of the Unhoused Response Group. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back and we'll be speaking with Todd Langton, an advocate with Agape Silicon Valley. Hello, Josh Bruce here, co-founder of San Jose Spotlight. Did you know that San Jose Spotlight is Silicon Valley's only nonprofit news organization? That's right. Our impact journalism is funded by generous readers like you. And this year, we have plans to expand our reporting to other cities in Santa Clara County. If you find value in our reporting, consider becoming a sustaining member today with a monthly or annual recurring donation by visiting our website, SanJoseSpotlight.com. Thank you.
Todd Langton is a homeless advocate, co-founder, and executive director of Agape Silicon Valley, a group that works to enhance the quality of life for homeless residents in the region. He's also the founder of the Coalition for the Unhoused of Silicon Valley. Welcome to the program, Todd. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So uh, let's jump right into it. Uh, 167 homeless people have died this year so far, and that's about uh, more than 70% being in San Jose. Uh, These deaths have grown significantly over the last decade, reaching a peak of 250 last year. At the same time, uh, the homeless population has been growing. It's up uh, 11% in San Jose since 2019, and there's more than 10,000 homeless people living in Santa Clara County total this year. I'm curious to know, what do you attribute as the reasons for this growth in the general homeless population, but why also the increase in these deaths? I think they go hand in hand, and it uh, it also coordinates with the uh, the lack of uh, solutions being implemented to to solve the crisis. First of all, it's the city, the county, the the state need to not only recognize that it's a it's a humanitarian crisis, but act accordingly. And a lot of us advocates, a lot of the unhoused, the uh, <clears throat> a lot of the nonprofits, we believe that our our city, county, and state, cities, counties, and state are not acting as if it's a, a crisis. And uh, a lot of reasons for that, why we feel that way. But we add to the, <clears throat> you add to the cost of living, the economy, the uh, inflation factors, uh, living in the most expensive area in the country, and not having services to, to fall back on when somebody struggles and they have a, a trigger or a, a life event that causes them to to uh, make some poor decisions and uh, it's a slippery slope. You know, they're sleep, sleeping in the, on a couch, uh, the friend's, friend's home, and then that they overstay their welcome. They're, then they move into their car, they can't get a job, they can't interview. Uh, next thing you know, they're, they're sleeping in a, in a tent or under a tarp in the, in the field. So you add all the, the combination of all these things have happened the most expensive place in the country um the, the inflation factor then you bring into the weather and i know we're going to talk about that a little bit later uh but then you add to it the the lack of services that are that are available to our unhoused and i know that there can be a lot of ngos listening to this and thinking are you kidding me but there's uh there's more to that coming yes later. And, and before I we get into that, that let, let's touch on just a couple specifics with these deaths um Roughly 60 of the deaths these year have been drug-related, according to county data, and I know that some of that deals with fentanyl use. I'm curious to know um, what your experience is with this issue of fentanyl among the unhoused population and what can be done locally to stem overdose deaths and provide treatment. It it seems to me in my conversations with others, too, that one, it's that fentanyl is a problem, but two, also that fentanyl is everywhere, that some of these drugs that they might have been taking before that were available are now being cut with fentanyl, which seems to make it a problem because the amount it takes to lethally overdose is microscopic compared to some of these other drugs. A lot of self-medication. There's a lot of self-medicating going on out there. Uh, you think of the trauma, the both emotional and mental trauma, and they, and they rely on these, the, uh, the meth, and then it the, goes to the fentanyl. Um, the lowest price perhaps wins. They're buying cheap drugs. They shouldn't be having any, but they're self-medicating because of the trauma that they're, they're going through. Now, I'm not a doctor and I don't pro- profess to know much about uh, uh, drug use or fentanyl or meth or any of that. <clears throat> uh, 
but we do have the resources to get some training out there. Uh, when I say we at the county, I know they have the resources to get tr more training out to the volunteers, to the advocates. They, the, that training and apply it and help the people with with uh, with what sh what should they do? What should they watch out for in relationship to the fentanyl and how to deal with that problem when it comes? So I know there's some services out there. We just need this, the city and the county needs to be more proactive and and helping us get that get that word out there. A few of these deaths, I, I believe the exact number was three. Um, there have been a few deaths that have been related to recent heat waves. We hit some triple digits earlier this month. Uh, I'm curious to know what kind of access homeless residents have to cool off and find water when it's hot. I know that Santa Clara County and San Jose, they both opened cooling centers. Those tend to not be open all summer, but more when a heat advisory is issued. But we've also heard complaints that these locations can be far from where people are staying. What, what is your experience with this and how this factors into it? Well, several issues. One, they're yes, they're far from where the people are staying. And two, they're not really communicated that well to the advocates. They're out there helping the unhoused, nor are they communicated that well to the unhoused. And uh, yes, you can open up a you can open up a store down the street, but nobody's going to come unless they know it's open. And then they have to have the means of getting there. So the same thing with a cooling center. Who knows where it is? I've never seen. I'm an advocate. I've never. I'm not seeing the emails or the the word come out about the cooling centers. And uh, I think we had a couple of warming centers last winter. That's fine, but you got to not only you got to have enough of them, have them in the right places and then be proactive and go out there and, and take some shuttle buses and go out and encourage people to come into the, uh, come into the cooling shelters or the warming shelters and make sure that you have plenty. You can't just open some doors and say, yes, we've done it and think everything's going to be fine. It's not, there's gotta be more hands-on and, and coordination going on at all levels with the, uh, with this entire homeless crisis but especially in areas of uh, the cooling center and also the, the drug use and the mental, mental challenges also. Todd, just one, one last thing to expand on there is um, this topic of bottled water. What kind of access do homeless residents have? Because I know that um, some jurisdictions give out bottled water to advocates to distribute to the camps that they visit. But I've heard recently that some of those allocations have actually been smaller than before. And so it, it sounds like people are getting less bottled water than they were previously. I was directly involved in that a couple of weeks ago. Um, Agape reached out to the, the county asking for some, for, for some water to be delivered that we were going to pick up and deliver the next day. And we also teamed up with uh, Grace Baptist Church and the county agreed to give us 50 cases each, 50 cases for Grace Baptist, 50 cases for, for, uh, for Agape. And when we got there the next morning, it was, sorry, Todd, you're only getting 15 cases. And I was just shocked. Uh, it's less than half. Yeah, let, drastic. And so I sent a text to the key people and they replied back and say, well, we just don't have enough. And then I said, well, how about Grace Baptist Church? They're coming in an hour to get their 50 cases. And they were going to get, they ended up getting 15 also. So when, we, when I drove back to the back of the warehouse to pick up the water, <clears throat> I took a look around and saw where the water usually uh, is uh, back in the, in the warehouse. And there was less than a third of a, a pallet back there. And in the early COVID days, the county did a great job of making sure there was plenty of water. 
you go back to the warehouse and you see pallets and pallets of water. So my question is, we knew we all watched the same weather reports uh, and we knew the heat wave was coming. Why wouldn't there have been a priority on making sure that there's plenty, not only plenty of water at the county level, but communication out to the various advocates to, to get the word out to, to distribute in an organized way? My, one of my big frustrations is I, I, I constantly wonder what would happen in the county and in the city of San Jose especially. What would happen if all the advocates just stopped doing their volunteer work? If we're doing so much of the work that the county and the city should be doing, we're doing so much of that. And uh, yet we shouldn't necessarily have to ask the county, can we have some water to distribute? They, we, we would hope they would call us and say, hey, Todd, does Agape need some water? And here's the camps we would love to have you take it to. So there's no overlapping or, or waste, waste going on. Instead, we're begging for water that we can distribute. I'm taking time off from my full-time career on a, on a Wednesday morning to go out there with a little red pickup to pick up 50 cases of water and only get 15 and to be told, well, that's all we have. We don't have enough. You know, it's, it's just not right. We're not taking care of our unhoused friends and neighbors. And it's, it's a very dysfunctional uh, system our county has, our, our cities within the county have. Uh, it can be done better. There's cities and counties across America that are doing a drastically better job. But right now, there's major dysfunction. All these NGOs, big and small, little, little nonprofits, the big ones, the agencies, they're all working independently of each other. There's very little synergy. And I know I'm going to get a lot of pushback on this, but it's true. There's very little synergy. These big nonprofits are all competing for the same dollars. There's contention amongst them. <clears throat> it's just very, very sad, very dysfunctional. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back to speak with Todd Langton of Agape Silicon Valley. Now is the time to get your 2023 premium memberships at Gilroy Gardens Family Theme Park. If you buy now, you'll enjoy free admission for the rest of this year, which includes special events like the all-new Mystery Adventure Nights, as well as Halloween, plus unlimited visits for all of 2023, not to mention free parking, in-park discounts, bring a friend free Fridays, and more. Members make the most memories. Get yours now at GilroyGardens.org. To be an entrepreneur, you have to have vision, confidence, and purpose. And like so many other business owners, you have to find resources that can help you through tough times. Comcast Rise changed my life. They put me in a unique space where I could scale on my own. More than 4,700 businesses have benefited from the Comcast Rise program. Apply today at ComcastRise.com for a variety of business, marketing, and tech makeovers on us. Keep rising. Looking for a design agency that can take your brand to the next level? Design in Mind is a woman-led design agency that specializes in branding mid-sized companies, startups, and even nonprofits. Reach out to discover how a better brand can help move your business forward and book a consultation at designim.com. One of the most vulnerable groups of the local homeless population are seniors. Uh, we've previously reported that the region is facing what some call a silver tsunami of homeless seniors. Uh, in your experience, what issues are seniors facing that can lead to homelessness and what is being done to address that? Well, I, it goes way back. You know, it goes by the curriculum of our, uh, our education system that we're not taught 
about finance near enough in our, in our grade schools and high schools and even in college. And uh, it, it, so when a, a crisis happens with a, an individual, they don't know how to fall back on how to budget their monies that they didn't save when the crisis hit. And then the crisis hits and boom, uh, the lack of, of ability to fall back and, and get some, get the, the basic help that they need. But you have a combination of other things. You've got uh, the aging of America, the graying of America, baby boomers coming of age. You've got uh, children perhaps that live in different states, and yet the, the parent lives here and they, the parent doesn't want to admit to their, their child that they're struggling. And uh, they say, well, I can sleep over at so-and-so's home for a while. And again, the slippery slope, next thing you know, they're sleeping in their car. Uh, but they, the lack of life skills that they've acquired, they've habitually been following of saving money and investing money in the right places for their retirement, um, not having some fallback on uh, when things, when things happen, whether they lost their job or they had a medical issue or um, mental, mental uh, challenge or the drug challenge or all the above. Uh, it's it's a tr it's a struggle. And you also we're also in a in a uh, in an area where the amount of jobs available for those you know fifty five sixty plus may are probably not as plentiful as those for if they're in their thirties and forties. And then the lower paying jobs, it's hard to make. Uh, it's hard to uh, find a good job that'll make you can make a living and pay the rent and the cost of living here. So it's a, it's a combination of a lot of things, but we have the aging uh, challenge and uh, then the lack of life skills. For a lot of the people, they don't have a fallback when a, when a trigger happens. When I, mean, when I mean trigger, they lost their job or they lost their business, lost their home, they had a health issue, um, whatever caused them to go down the, the track of becoming unhoused. Mm, thank you for breaking that down. Um, just, just a couple more questions here. A, a large percentage of the unhoused population, some estimates actually place it at more than 25%, um, struggle with mental health issues. I think we hear a lot about housing first and the need to get people shelter, but for these people who struggle with mental health issues, I think housing is really only part of the equation and they really need mental health supportive services. What do you think can be done to prioritize this kind of service to get people off the streets? I used to be a big believer in housing first. And then I've got some more education on the issue and I've come to realize it's, you, know, you can't just put somebody into a home and expect them to, to thrive. Uh, you remember the movie Shawshank Redemption where the elderly gentleman got out of prison. He, he went into an apartment, didn't know how to function. And I'm not saying that that's, I'm not saying that that's what happens when we do the housing first model here, but there's some great examples of, of how it should be done. And one is, uh, it's called Haven for Hope. It's now in San Antonio, Texas. And I hope that all the listeners would log on to havenforhope.org. And 22 acres. And it's built by uh, uh, the original version. The original founder of it was uh, an oil tycoon. And he pulled all the resources, all the NGOs, all the agencies together. And they said, hey, we got to do a better job with our homelessness here in San Antonio. And it's built right around the concept of wraparound services. Let's bring those troubled people in, a lot of families going in, and uh, let's have them be there for four to six months, maybe a little longer. 
and we're the sole purpose of getting them housing, but let's have wraparound services. Let's have job training. Let's have the mental health, the, the, the drug, alcohol, rehab, and so forth. And uh, let, let's get them taken care of. But the key thing is in, in an organization like Haven for Hope and another one called Built for Zero is you get all these agencies, all these nonprofits and the volunteers working together and synergistically. And we don't have that here in Silicon Valley. We're all working independently of each other. And uh, then you get the big, the big nonprofits. Uh, they're all working independently of each other. You have little groups that go out and distribute food to the unhoused. And uh, next thing you know, another group's coming in to distribute more food to that same unhoused uh, camp. Lack of synergy, lack of, uh, lack of uh, coordination. This can be, this whole issue can re be resolved. It's not very complicated, but there has to be the will of the community. We need to have elected, elected leaders, not these elected followers who just simply follow whatever the NIMBYs, not in my backyard population says regarding uh, taking care of uh, the unhoused. We need, we need some big um, uh, sites like Haven for Hope. We, we, the, our coalition is proposing uh, using 80 acres out at the fairgrounds. Excuse me, 13 of the 80 acres that are barren out at the fairgrounds as a transitional, the miniature version of Haven for Hope, where we have wraparound services, where we welcome the people in, let them start working on their challenges. This sounds so trite and so simple, but uh, <clears throat> Nick, if you can imagine tonight, you go to bed, you cannot lock that door behind you. You can't lock the front door. How well are you going to sleep tonight? And then when you go to work tomorrow or you go shopping or you go do your thing, you can't lock the, your home. And if somebody wanted to get in your home tonight, all they need to do is take a pair of fingernail clippers and slice the canvas, the, you know, the canvas walls. How well would you sleep tonight? So on top of all these issues, the mental and the drug issues and the part that really feeds all this is there's a there's mental and, and trauma. There's a lot of insomnia, the self-medication, and that feeds the mental drug issues, the, the mental health issues. It's all symbiotic. It's all working together for the for the downside of the unhoused person. We as a county, as a city, we need to do a better job with our unhoused and we can get us all working together, not working independently like they are now. So it's a long, long answer there, but uh, you've got <clears throat> you got some major mental issues out there going on, and it's all tied in. Who knows if it's a chicken before the egg thing? Did the drugs come first and the mental issues second? We all—it's been proven that those two go hand in hand. Uh, but when you're going through so much trauma, trauma that's caused by you being unhoused, trauma that's caused by these needless sweeps that happen with the uh, with the cities and not knowing where you're going to live the next door the next day and trauma that happens when you're not, you can't, you feel like you can't leave your tent and go get some of the services you need because you're, when you, if you leave your stuff may get stolen, probably will get stolen. We can do a better job. And if you take a look at our proposal that we have for the fairgrounds from the coalition of the Silicon coalition for the unhoused of Silicon Valley, it's a smart plan that says, Hey, look, we can take some, make it a transitional, 13 acres of the 80 acres that's just sitting barren. Uh, they 
they have a, a, a pallet shelter home that they can lock up there. They can keep their things there. They can get the services they need from training to medical help, uh, drug rehab, and so forth. But have a place where they can lock the door and go take a shower. And wouldn't it be great to see a lot of them just simply go on a job interview? Whoa, who would have thought, right? But anyway, we can do this. Other cities and counties are doing it. But our county, our city of San Jose, major dysfunctional in the way we treat our unhoused. We're not working together and we, we've got to be. There's another organization I just want to point out, and it's up in San Francisco. It's called urbanvisionalliance.org, urbanvisionalliance.org. They're getting a lot of volunteers and NGOs and, and venture capitalists together to try to create a haven for hope in the Bay Area. And uh, I'm going to do everything I can to help them make that happen because that is what is needed. A safe place where people can go and get their life back on track and perhaps learn some of the basic skills that they have never learned in their lifetime, like saving money, like uh, uh, taking a shower uh, uh, regularly before you do your job interview, uh, learning some life skills that you need to interview skills or uh, learn how to become a mechanic or whatever. But perhaps it's just a detox and to have a safe place where you can go to get uh to regroup and get on with your life after five to six months. Let me just say one last thing about the fairgrounds. <clears throat> I was shocked a year and a half ago when I found out that the number one source of revenue for our Santa Clara County fairgrounds was online horse race gambling and paintball. I, I was I was ashamed. I was disgusted. I I didn't believe it. So I snuck in out there and went under the tape after I got my uh, after I got my shots for the uh, uh, the boosters, and went around and said, where's this little casino out here in the fairgrounds? Sure enough, I found it. It was dark and dreary. A guy had been working there for 30 years. I said, you got to be kidding me. This is the number one source of revenue for our county fairgrounds, one of the most unused fairgrounds in the entire state. Couldn't we take 13 of those 80 barren acres and create some transitional housing and, and make a big, huge dent in our homeless problem here. So if it's not the fairgrounds, there's, there's plenty of other places, city and county help us find them, but let's put a plan together and let's stop talking and let's stop, stop doing all these expensive studies and research and decades down the line, we're still doing studies and research, still talking and not doing. But in the meantime, and back to the original premise of this, this podcast, we have unnecessary deaths. People are dying way too soon. It's probably going to get close to 250, 280, 300 this year alone. Uh, people that died way too soon. Many of those, a lot of them I knew personally. And I, walked, I watched them go through this process to one degree or another, as a lot of the advocates have. It's heartbreaking. And it's sad. Obviously, it's sad. It's, again, the, the phrase that you can... Who said this? I don't know who, who made this quote, but you can judge a civilization by how they treat their most, their most vulnerable. Our society is soulless here in Silicon Valley. We need to change that. Thank you for breaking that down for us. Uh, Todd Langton, co-founder with Agape Silicon Valley and founder of the Coalition of the Unhoused of Silicon Valley. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. Appreciate all the great work you do. 
That's it for this episode of The Podlight, a podcast produced by San Jose Spotlight. I'm editor Nick Preciado. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.